Hello and welcome to the Foxy Property Chat Podcast. I'm your host today, Jake, and it has been a little while or a long while since my last podcast, but I'm back and today I've got a very special episode, uh, particularly for those who are looking to build a significant home staging business. Uh, and in this case, when I say it, I'm talking about a million dollar plus revenue business. Uh, and I don't think that there's actually a lot of those in Australia, uh, or at least in the home staging industry. So if that is your ambition, listen closely. If it's not, you'll still get a lot out of this chat. Um, it's actually my first guest from outside or based uh, outside Australia, so international podcast. Um, it's Melissa Morrow from Rave Home Staging. Uh, she's based in Jacksonville, Florida, and Melissa moved to Jacksonville to start her business, Rave Home Staging, completely from scratch around about six years ago. And I'm going to let her share some of the numbers around her business and the growth that they've achieved over that fairly short amount of time. Uh, Melissa is a regular speaker at some of the industry events in the US uh, and I'm told in other countries, not Australia yet, but we'll look at that in the future. Um, she recently gave a keynote at the Int- International Association of Home Staging Professionals conference, a bit of a mouthful, uh, and I broke down a lot of that talk when we um, spoke earlier and asked her to dive deeper on some of the key messages that she, that she uh, and her thoughts on the industry. Some of the things that we covered were how she thinks about marketing and her focus on putting out educational content, uh, how she's changed her pricing structure, uh, and it's something that I've not seen in Australia, um, and she's done it to ensure that price is never an objection again from her clients, so uh, most in the industry would like to have that. Uh, Where other home stages are going wrong, in her opinion, by using what she calls pretty talk, and the one thing that Melissa would change in her business if she could. Now, we did have the, co- the connection drop out halfway through the interview, but hopefully with the magic of editing, you won't even notice. As I said, there's a lot of great stuff in this chat, so without dragging it on any longer, please enjoy this chat with Melissa Morrow. Well, firstly, welcome, Melissa. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. And, and you're joining me. Uh, I'm sitting here in, in our warehouse. It's 8 a.m. in the morning in Brisbane. You're joining me, and I think it's 5 o'clock where you are. Tell us where you're all based. Yeah, so we're in Jacksonville, Florida, and I am actually home. I came home because our warehouse is uh, a little noisy at this time of day, so I am I am doing this from home. So you may potentially hear a dog barking in the background. <laughs> I've got signs up all over the doors so that our team knows that uh, I'm in here recording, so hopefully they, they keep quiet for us. Um, so, so I usually start by asking um, my guests what they were doing before they got into their current staging business, but it's a bit different for you because this is actually your second staging business. So it how is. about first we start with what were you doing before you got into the home staging industry? Right. So I was a manager for a real estate office. So I was the office manager. I gave care and instruction to a lot of the realtors that were in our office. I managed to look through all their contracts and make sure that they had everything done correctly and would often help them with things on MLS. Um, And prior to that, I actually worked for a real estate office in recruiting. So I was out there trying to recruit agents for the company. So I've been in real estate in one form or another for quite, uh, well, let's see, over over 20 years now, I would say. And I think there's probably going to be a, a couple of um, things where we talk about where we've got very different real estate industries. Um, mm-hmm. For those that sitting in Australia and don't know what MLS is, can you give me a, a quick snapshot of that? 
Sure. MLS is our multiple listing service. And that's basically when an agent has a property for sale, they will enter the information online to the MLS and other real estate agents can see what properties are available. And then that information is also typically fed to sites like, I don't know if you have them over there, but to like Zillow and Realtor.com and Trulia and places like that, where um, individual people then can see what houses are for sale. And often their searches will start there, but it all begins with the agent putting their new listing into a service that sort of spreads that information out. Sure. So for us in Australia, it'll be realestate.com and domain.com, um, probably the two big ones. So similar, just a different different set of sites over there. Um, was there a particular moment or was it a, a kind of series of events or what was it that actually made you decide to, to leave um, that prior role in the in a real estate office and move into starting your own business? Sure. Well, I um, actually really hated my boss in my real estate office. Um, I, I, I found her to be a completely unethical person and I hate to say that, but that is the truth. And so I dreaded going to work every day, even though I actually loved my job. And um, at the time, there was a TV show called um, Sell This House. And I loved watching that. And I found that I actually could tell them what would actually be better choices than what they were making at the time. I had grown up in a family where my mother was actually a professional faux finisher and my aunt was, she wasn't an interior designer, but she'd considered purchasing an interior design franchise and things like that. And so I kind of grew up around a lot of the, the homemaker decorating kind of background. And, and, um, and I kind of make the joke that when I was growing up, my mother liked to get married and divorced a lot. So we sold a lot of houses and moved a lot. <laughs> um, so there was the constant that. And then when I got married, which was, uh, I was 19 when I got married and I'm still with my husband and, um, he was in the Navy. We moved 12 times in 15 or 16 years of service. So again, it was buying and selling a lot of houses. So it just kind of became ingrained when the show was on. I found it fascinating and really believed that I could actually do that for a living. And that, I mean, it's not a, I guess, uncommon story. But at the same time, there's a big jump between working for somebody and starting your own business. Was that a scary kind of transition? It wasn't. I've been, um, I'll say I've had entrepreneurial seeds my whole life. Uh, when I was in elementary school, my mother, who had been in ad specialties at that time, had owned her own business. And then as I got older, she owned her own faux business, a faux painting business that she'd always had that. And I'd like, she would give me things to play with. And inevitably I would find myself selling them at school. And I've never had a hobby in my life. I don't think that I didn't find some way to turn in into an income generating source. And when I was a stay at home mom with my husband in the Navy, I would um, create crafts and sell them. Uh, this was before online. So it was like a lot of craft shows and craft booths and things like that. So I've never had a hobby that I didn't turn into a business. So having a business was fairly seamless. I was fortunate that my husband made enough money that we didn't need the income. I had been a stay-at-home mom until all of my kids went to school, and I really only went to work because I was bored. As my, I'm not a very good cleaner and housemaker. I'm a good. I was a good mom, and I enjoyed that part. But once, like the cook, when it just came down to cooking and cleaning, I was done. Fair enough. Um, 
So give us a bit of context about Brave Home Staging, um, which is your business today, your, mm-hmm. as you said, your second home staging um, company. So any kind of numbers that you can share to give that context, so number of you know houses staged per year, level of stock, employees, revenue, anything like that that you're willing to, to share? Sure. So we have 22 employees right now. Uh, we do typically anywhere from seven to 10 vacant stagings per week and then equal a number of destagings universally. Uh, we can do up to about 20 jobs between the two a week and we very commonly have the calendar very full. Uh, we do this year we're on target for 1.25 million in gross revenue for the year. Last year was our was our fifth year in business and we capped out at just over a million dollars. So good steady growth. Um, we actually could grow faster, but it's a matter of being able to stay profitable in the business and make not um, have to put more money into the business to buy more inventory. And that's a it's a conversation. I mean, firstly, congratulations. It's a you know a, a great achievement and such a significant business. Obviously, um, it's something that a conversation we have a lot. Um, and look, the home staging industry is probably a little bit newer in Australia. There's certainly been people um, or businesses for quite a long time, but it's definitely over the last few years, um, like a lot of new emerging businesses starting up. And so the conversation of how do I um, you know, grow my business and invest in inventory and be able to do the the work that's coming in at the same time as remain profitable and be able to, uh, you know, afford to actually run the business. So um, it's one of those conversations and I kind of say it over, um, over and over is that growth costs money. And mm-hmm. often when you're starting a business, you don't appreciate what that means until, um, you know, you're a couple of years in and, and it's, it's a lot of the time it's about that controlled growth and, and knowing what, um, growth you want to achieve and what that's going to cost and how that balances with, as you say, the profitability side. Right. I think that if I had enough capital behind me right now, which for us would probably be about another quarter of a million dollars, then I could probably raise us from 1.25 million to 3 million in about 18 months. But I don't have that quarter of a million sitting behind me. So it's, um, it is about the sustainable growth and still making a profit. So I've chosen not to in the in the five and a half years we've been in business. I've chosen never to take a distribution from our company. I do get paid a salary, but we we neither me nor my business partners have ever taken a distribution. Uh, we put it all back into the business, and that's what has fueled the growth. Excellent. Um, I'm going to change tact a little bit. You recently gave a keynote speech, and and you're a bit of a speaker, um, and you're well known. Um, for those that haven't seen, go and have a look at or Google Rave Home Staging. Um, you know, the, I kind of come across you, I think, on Facebook and through some of the Facebook groups, and I can see that you put out a lot of videos, a lot of content, which I'm going to ask you about in a second. But um, as I say, one of the things you do is a lot of um, speaking. And the recent keynote I saw at the International Association of Home Staging Professionals uh, conference, um, where you were kind of reflecting on the the growth of your business that you just mentioned into a million dollar business. Um, there's a few things in there in particular that I really um, was hoping to get you to kind of talk about because I, I think they really resonated with me and probably with um, a lot of my audience. Um, mm-hmm. So the first one was you made a comment um, that when you think about marketing, you think that educational content is key. So can you tell me practically what that means for your business in terms of the content that you're putting out and, and kind of why you think that way? Sure. So I'm a big fan of Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, Gary V. I don't know if you've ever listened to his podcast. Oh, you, you're not- speaking to an, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a convert. I'm obsessed. 
Yeah. So, so am I, I listen to them all the time and I've been doing educational marketing since I got into business. So long before I ever heard him speak long before his book ever came out, his first book ever came out. Um, I have been that that's how we've grown. Every business is really by getting in front of our ideal clients and teaching them what we wanted them to know and how to best use our services. And so I think that's important. And today I think that it it's the wave of the internet and the internet that's that's driving new customer acquisition and and letting the homeowners individuals know the benefits and value i don't know how it is in australia but here in the us i have found that the state will teach a realtor the laws of selling real estate and the broker will teach the realtor how to build a pipeline of customers if the agent is lucky, the broker will teach that. But no one really tells the realtors actually how to sell a house, how to sell the product they've been given um, to, to merchandise and to uh, market. And so they're really – the agent's job really, as far as they understand it, isn't to sell the house. It's to it's to build a customer base. And I think there's kind of a problem with that because if you build a customer base and you don't sell the product, then um, – then your customers aren't going to be happy, right? So for me, I make it a point to teach agents how to sell a house. And that goes beyond just the staging and the preparation part. But it's to teach them the things that I actually know from real estate as well. Um, things that I understand about the buyer psychology and the seller psychology and how things translate from that, how when a buyer is looking online, when they're looking through, what did you say, realestate.com is what you're, yep. um, or .au yep. or whatever it is um, for your sites, when they're looking through there to understand the buyer psychology that if they don't like the first five photos, they're not going to move on to the sixth, seventh, and eighth. Um, so those first five photos have to be key. Really understanding and researching all of those, all of that data and turning that into something that's teachable and coachable and then teaching them how to use our staging services as an addition to that so that they could actually make the most of what the content, the very little bit of content they are producing so they're getting the most buyer leads and then the most referrals. And I guess when you think about it, educational, and I think that's a good way to put it, um, you're teaching how, you know, a realtor or uh, even a client out there that how to use your services. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess another or another arm of the educational piece could be, and for us, I guess, and so the differences in our market a little bit, so we often deal directly with clients in some cases, um, although a lot of the work still comes from referrals through real estate agents. But um, I guess when we're talking about education, some of what we like to put out ourselves is teaching people how to do the staging themselves with some of the pieces that they have. Now, that doesn't mean that we're trying to say you don't need a home stager, um, mm-hmm. but what it means is that some people are going to be limited on budget. Some people were never going to use us anyway, but it builds uh, a trust um, with agents. It builds trust with the clients who will often get us in for a consult anyway, and some of them do decide to do it themselves. But more often than not, people will take the advice and then decide they don't want to do it themselves and they'll get they'll bring us in to, to do it for them anyway. Um, so I think, you know, I, I don't know your thoughts on that, but from a, an educational point of view, we found that to be quite successful as well. And we do that as well. And we also produce videos that help other stagers in other areas. So we've done videos on marketing videos for other stagers and that are on our YouTube channel. And then we've also done videos like um, 
uh, I think one of the most, two of the most popular videos we have would probably be good for a homeowner or agent or um, another stager in another area to learn, like the fact that the shower curtain should always be open during showings and how that um, creates a different perception for buyers and a different buying experience for the shower curtain to be open in um, particularly in the bath, the non-master bathrooms. And then um, another one is if you've got a window and around like a bay window and around table that the chairs should be on an X pattern, not a plus pattern. And the visual differences and psychological differences that those different configurations make. Definitely. And and it's interesting because we do something similar in terms of the content we put out here. We, we put it out for all sorts of different target markets. And one of them, as you say, is uh, for other stages. So mm-hmm. some of the content we put out, I think our most popular video was a recent one where um, it sounds clickbaity, but it's exactly what I went through in the video was how much can you make as a home staging business? Um, and obviously that you know, if you're running it or you're new to the industry or um, you've got a, a, a small business of your own, that's going to be of interest. So it's, and, and it wasn't a, this, you know, it was more about this is what we've found and here's some percentages that are kind of general in nature and all that sort of stuff. But it's, um, you know, I, I think different content for different audiences is important and you don't have to stick to just the one. No, I agree. And I think that, you know, you know, you mentioned that you really do more for the individual homeowner versus the agent. For us, we a lot of our content can go across board to many different target audiences. But what we focus on is I'll say the low hanging fruit. I want to, our biggest customer base is actually flippers. So it's what we do the most for. And that's because we have flippers that do 150 houses a year. And I'd rather have one customer that does 150 houses a year than, you know, 10 customers that do 15 and, you know, 150 that do one because it's a lot easier in the end to keep the customer happy. And if something goes wrong and they one time, you know, they know that that's not your standard, right? That things happen and this isn't their first experience with you. So we tend to go after customers who have multiple properties to give us throughout a year. And that makes things really a lot smoother. It doesn't mean that we won't take the one-off customer, but we're not going to really spend marketing dollars towards that. We're going to spend our our biggest marketing dollar toward the customer that's going to give us the most ROI, yeah, I think that's a good point. Especially, I mean, not especially, but for those that are new to the business, and it's always a question: How do I win more work for the for those that are new to the industry? Um, and it's an important point. Like the low hanging fruit are for us as well. It's it's going to be agents who can refer, you know, five, ten, fifteen jobs a month. Um, and if you're a brand new business in the industry, that can be a huge growth opportunity for you. So I agree there. Right. Um, Next one I had there was, and, and you can fact check this for me, but as I understand it, your pricing is, it's different than anything I've seen, at least in Australia. It's based on the list price of the house that you're staging. So that's a percentage of that. So tell me about how you, so, so how do you think about that? Why do you do it that way? Um, and I guess talk a little bit about if, if it's been that way right from the start or if you had to kind of transition people and, and it's an educational piece because it's, is it, are you the only ones who do it, I guess, in your market or is it something that's a bit more common? 
I think since people have seen the success of our pricing model, that it is picking up in the industry. I've heard of more and more people doing it. Uh, for many years, we were the only ones doing it, and we were absolutely told by everybody not to do it that way. So, you know, sometimes you just have to throw caution to the wind and say, nope, I think this is a good plan for me. It happened because it wasn't that way in our business in Charleston, that company. We, we had a different pricing structure model, which I'll say was really much more random. It kind of was how big is the house? How much furniture do we think we're going to need? Like it really was kind of pulling a number out of the sky. And this way, when we have repeat clients, what we really wanted was a formula that they would, that the if we were working with an agent or a flipper, that they could know before the listing how much it would cost a stage. So for a flipper, our main client, they're probably 80% or more of our business. For a flipper, they could actually, when they were calculating how much it was going to cost to put the house, you know, in the repairs and, and upgrades, that they could calculate the cost of staging into that. So there was no, at the end, well, we didn't know staging was going to cost that much. So that was part of it, being able to have that formula. And then for realtors, when they're taking the listing and they're bringing staging into the conversation for them to have a very clear number that they can, an expectation that they could give their homeowners. And so that really established us that it wasn't, well, let's see how much staging was. It was something that they could wrap their brains about uh, the process and the cost. And for homeowners, the individual homeowner, as opposed to the flipper or what have you, they could see that pretty well as they were paying realtors a percentage of list price. So we kind of fit right into that industry model. And with that, we decided we didn't want to be a rental company. It wasn't, we weren't going to charge by, you know, oh, our quote says, you know, a sofa, two chairs, an eight by 10 rug, a coffee table, blah, blah, blah. And then when we came in, decided, you know what, it would really be better if we had two sofas instead of a sofa and two chairs and change that model. And then I'm saying, well, doesn't that cost less or cost more or, you know, question the pricing model that we gave them because we had given them a list of what we were going to bring in and we're charging a rental fee off of that. So we didn't want anything to do with that. Um, and, and so the, it kind of changed. We did, we ha also have an option to pay at close, which most staging companies don't offer. They need that liquid now in order to do their, in order to do the staging. And we tacked on an additional half percent to our quote. So instead of 1%, it was one and a half percent. And since then we've actually changed it to our staging fees are one and a half percent. But if you pay upfront, we give you a discount of 20%. So we've actually sort of raised our prices from one to one and a half, knowing that, um, a lot of people who, when we were tacking on that half percent, tried to talk us out of it. Now everybody wants to pay us up front because they want the discount. And that's, I just want to focus on something you said there because you, you said it and, and it's something that we've thought about and I think it's, it's brilliant and it's, and it's, it's a psychology thing. It's a way, it's a, the way that you've worded it because we have a, a what we call a stage now pay later. So it's a similar sort of thing. Um, it's not pay at close, but it's in essence, it's a deferred payment option. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's two ways that you can go about this. And the first one that a lot of people have spoken about is they have their fee for upfront payment and that's their default. And if you want to defer payment, there's a, a percentage added on, like you said. Um, so there's a premium or an extra cost. The mm -hmm. the alternative way, which is what you've transitioned to is, and, and this is what we do, we have our deferred payment option as our default 
And then if you want to pay up front, there's a discount. Now, the, the numbers are exactly the same, but people don't like the word premium. They like the word discount. Exactly. Um, and and it's it's not changing anything other than the way you actually talk about it. So I think uh, I just wanted to highlight that because I think you've you've mentioned something that we stumbled on, and I think it's a really clever way of going about it. Yeah, and and you know we explore different pricing options all the time. Right now for the fall, we have a a different pricing structure going on. As we're one of the things that happens a lot in our market is we are absolutely a premium staging service. But we've noticed that a lot of uh, the less voluminous flippers in our market have started hiring another staging company that provides a really low cost, an absurdly low cost, I'll say. Um, and we've created a pricing structure that actually sort of almost matches them, but it's only month to month. So when you're looking at the two numbers side by side, we're probably about 25% more than their pricing quote. But in the long run, we'll actually turn our furniture faster and make more money, even though it sounds like we're making a lot less upfront. Okay. Um, very interesting. And, and as I I don't think it's something I've seen in Australia in terms of that pricing model as a percentage of, of list price. But um, I think it's very interesting. And one of the comments you made when you spoke about this in your in your keynote was, um, and I'm I'm trying to remember the exact quote, but you said, how would you like to never have prices and objection again? And I think mm -hmm. everybody in this industry can relate to that. Basically, what we're looking at is that we never have to go out to a house and preview a house with out the customer already having an, having approved the pricing. So we're only going to go out there to um, ease their mind, if you will, but they've already agreed to our pricing structure. So we're not wasting any time. But before we kind of get to that, and they, they've called us, usually the their initial comments on the phone are either how much does staging cost or I have X budget and what can I get for that? And we sort of backtrack the conversation and really give them our value pitch. Because again, um, up to 80%, I'm sorry, over 80% of our customer base, our flippers, we're able to really have good conversations with them about what kind of return on that investment they're seeing. Investors don't do a lot of expenses if they're not going to get a return out of it. And so universally, we've heard that they find that they're getting typically about 10% more for the property when they stage it than when it's left unstaged. So in our market, because our market is sort of a very low-end market, if it's a $250,000 house, that means that they're when they stage the house, they're thinking they're going to get about $25,000 more for that house by staging it than leaving it empty. And that's a big number. So when we're talking to our customers, we don't actually say 10% more because we don't want them psychologically going crazy and raising the price so high that they can't sell it, but we're going to let them know that uh, a return should typically be three to five times what they're spending, um, even, though our, even though our customers tell us it's closer to 10%. Okay. So when we look at that, what we're saying is if you have a $250,000 house at 1%, because it's really what we're looking for, that's going to be a $2,500 investment that you should expect to get $7,500 or more out of that at closing. And so when we explain that, then typically we don't get as much, like if, if all you're concerned is about spending $2,500, you're not our customer. If you're 
concerned about how much am I getting back? Is this an expense or is this an investment? Then our, you're our customer base. So once we establish that, then we're happy to meet with them and do whatever we need to to secure the deal. But we're never going to waste time in a house where we haven't already secured the knowledge of what our pricing is. We're never going to get out to a house on the go, oh, I had no idea it would cost so much. I think right? it's a, I mean, you're basically qualifying your leads in a way. And mm-hmm. as you say, um, there are there are people who aren't going to be your customer. And without having that expectation of price up front, often uh, you'll get a call to go and uh, look at a house or give a quote when they were never your customer to begin with. So I really like it. Um, and I think people should think about that. We've thought about a version um, which we're looking into, which is not a percentage necessarily, but fixed pricing. And we have, uh, you know, a number, say three or four different fixed prices depending on, uh, uh, you know, what, what size house or something, you know, we're, we're still looking into things like that. But but the point would be more of a way to give an expectation of cost before they actually turn up or before yeah. we, they call us. For us, the fixed price model doesn't work because we focus in a lot on demographic staging. So who's the most likely buyer for this house? And our, because of where we are in Florida, we have beach beachfront properties, and then we have very rural properties. And so you might have a $200,000 house that's um, very rural that is 4,000 square feet. So you got to bring in a lot of furniture. And then you might have a $600,000 beach house that's 1,200 square feet. And you don't have to bring in very much furniture, but it has to be super quality. You know, so package pricing doesn't like we stage the entire house, all of the rooms, all of the interior square footage. So for us, when we tried to calculate like, well, if it's this price point, then it's this multiple and blah, blah, blah. The easiest in the end was the percent and there's some we win and there's some we lose, but overall we make a good profit. Fair enough. Um, I'm going to try and get through a couple of questions reasonably mm-hmm. quickly because I know I'm yep. taking up some of your time. Um, okay. Probably the favorite, probably um, the thing that was my favorite comment that you, you mentioned um, in that recent video was how a lot of the stages in the market use what you call pretty talk. Um, and, mm. and I think this is, I've written this down because it was a, a direct quote that I really liked. You said, we don't make houses pretty, we make them marketable. Pretty mm-hmm. is a side effect of what we do. Can you talk to that a little bit? Oh, I love this is like my favorite topic in the whole wide world. Um, I absolutely get hostile sometimes listening to stagers talk about what they do from a design related platform. We need to use good design principles with what we're doing. But ultimately, this goes back to that demographic thing. We need to understand who is buying the product. And then when we understand who is buying the product, then we need to figure out how they're going to use that product. So this is, and and this is kind of the example that I give for people to really understand. If you were, if you decided to set up a store and you were going to sell school supplies, wouldn't it be important to know whether you wanted to sell college school supplies or elementary school supplies? Right. Because if you just said, hey, I want to sell school supplies and you opened up a a school supply store that geared things towards elementary school kids and you opened it up next to the college, you probably aren't going to sell very much. Right. And yeah, absolutely. Um, And I guess I'm I'm not a stager. I'm not a stylist or or have any sort of design bones in my body. I'm the business (laughs) 
uh, owner or operator um, with my wife and she's the chief um, stylist in our team and we've got a, a team of stylists. So from my point of view, and I've said this before, but when I look through Instagram and we kind of obviously we look at all of our competition and, and the other stages around um, Australia and, and yourself and others in um, around the world, from my point of view as somebody who isn't a stylist, everybody looks the same. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's not trying to be um, you know critical of anybody's staging, but I just don't understand the the you know the small details that make a difference I'm not the person who is going to know that and I think I in some ways relate more to the buyer than maybe what the stylist does so you have to understand that somebody else looking at this from the outside who doesn't look at different homes every single day they're not going to know the difference and and a comment that you made which I agree with is if all we do is we look the same and we all say the same thing, which is generally everybody says we sell for more and we sell faster, mm-hmm. if we're, if that's what everybody is saying, it makes sense that somebody would go for a cheaper option. Absolutely. And so like we classify this that for for us, the definition of staging is that staging creates a measurable, marketable change in the perceived value of the property. Yeah, I love that. Everything we do focuses first on that. We do not make a single recommendation in the house unless we believe that recommendation will make a perceived value change in the house. It has to be measurable and it has to be marketable or forget about it. I'll never forget. I used to have um, in my business in Charleston, I, I had a stager on my team and he was a little bit of a diva and he would be like, I see this bookcase with all white accessories. And I'm like, that's great, David. Um, Do we have all white accessories for you? And he's like, no, you need to buy me some. And I'm like, okay, well, tell me, is that a design decision or is it actually going to change the perceived value of the property to the buyer? And he would just kind of stare at me blankly and be like, it's a design decision. And I'm like, great, then use what we have. Right? Right. Because we're not, I mean, we do want pretty pictures. We do want it to be favorable in MLS, but I can do that without all white accessories, right? I can do that in other ways. And I'm going to spend money on the property. If, if somebody tells me they need a desk because there's this space here, that's an awkward space. And really it's, you know, maybe even a hallway and it really could be an office, you know, a a nice little simple office then, then, and we don't have the right shape or dimension desk in stock. I'm going to go buy a new desk to fit in that space because I'm going to bring value to that property. I'm going to create an extra room or an extra usable market space for them that's that's going to make a difference to the potential buyer and so I will do that um, and we do that like on a lot of landings and things like that giving the buyer ideas of how to use a space that otherwise otherwise might be empty useless space and when we can do that and we can pop open their eyes and say ah now I see how I can live here that's when they're going to emotionally connect with the property and that's when they're going to pay more money for it it's not about making the house pretty. It's not about knowing where the sofa goes. Um, but it is about creating a lot of the visual perception of a lot of space, a lot of usable space in the way that they would live. I agree 100%. Uh, I don't think I've got anything to add to that. You've said it very well. Um Let's move on from that mm-hmm. talk. And as I said before, for those um, that would like to see, I think it's about a 40-minute um, keynote that you gave. So 
for those listening, go and check it out. Um, but a couple of final questions. So if you could click your fingers, going back to being the business owner, mm-hmm. click your fingers and instantly change one thing about your business, what would it be? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Um, I am going to say that... <sighs> Or maybe wish, a current frustration. Yeah, I I think that I wish that I would have hired another me sooner. And what I mean by that is we've got a great team, but I'm we've just finished. We actually just had our big mark our big meeting today, finishing up the book Traction, and about sort of replanning the business for the new year. And we're actually looking at potentially franchising in another year here in the states. And okay. the one thing I think I really waited too long on that we've just changed, but like now I feel like I'm under such the gun for him to catch up is hiring an operations manager that. I've been really good about delegating things that I'm not confident with. Um, if I'm, if I, uh, like, I don't like the money part of it. I mean, I like, uh, I like data. I like numbers, but I'm just not good at the money part, the schedule, you know, paying the bills and all that on time. Um, so I need somebody else to do that because I get distracted by other bigger projects. And I hired a sales manager because I don't like networking. And I hired other stagers and assistants because I couldn't do it all. I knew that we needed to get more done. We hired our own in-house movers and so on and so forth. But the one position that I didn't that I didn't replace until just recently, and I feel like we should have done it a year sooner, is an operations manager. And that's because for the last year plus, I have spent all my time working in the business and not on the business. And now that I have somebody taking that that responsibility, I'm starting to see things are becoming more efficient in the business. And I'm able to actually build out the future of the company. So I think that's maybe the one thing that I would snap my fingers and and go back a year and hire hire somebody okay. to get that in place sooner. I like that answer. It's um, you know, it's cliche, but working on business and not in the business. I think that's especially for the new businesses in this industry or any industry. But um, you know, it's it is a bit of a trap when you're the, especially. I mean, for us personally, you know, my wife being the chief stylist, she started the the company from the styling point of view, um, and she's now building out her team. But she's still very involved in a lot of things, and mm-hmm. and that's just that's what happens when you start a small business and you're the you're the person. Uh, right. And, and, and I think for the, you know, for, for my thought on that, it, it doesn't have to be another, uh, another operations manager, but, you know, just on the, if you're finding that things aren't getting done, that you're spending too much time in the minutia, like it's time to look at what minutia can I get rid of? And it took a long time for me to realize the minutia I needed to get rid of was actually operations, that I didn't need to control all of that. And I think part of that question is, asking yourself, what am I, like I said, what am I the best at and where do I add the most value? And for a lot of people in this, you know, starting out in the early days, you, you're kind of, you're wearing every hat, you're doing everything, but there, there comes a point where you have to start saying some of these things could be done better by somebody else and I shouldn't be doing them anymore. And not being afraid to hire somebody better than you. Yep, absolutely. All right. Uh, last couple of questions here. What would you say has been the most difficult thing you've had to deal with? And that can be from a business point of view, a personal point of view as, as the owner. Um, what, what kind of comes to mind? Starting over. 
when I sold my business in Charleston and we moved to Jacksonville, I did not plan on starting over. I plan on getting out of the industry. And the truth is I love it. It's in my blood. And we moved because my husband had a job that he couldn't say no to. And I had been uh, sick for a year on bed rest for over eight months. And so it made sense for us to move. And I just didn't... Um, coming off of that, I didn't think that I would get back into it. And feeling the pains of knowing what a great company you can have, but not knowing anyone and literally not having anything, not having a warehouse, not having a mover, not having an assistant, not having anything, going from having it all to having none of it. um, That was very eye-opening. I think the great advantage that I had there, though, was I literally got to look at my business and say, if I had it to do all over again, what would I change? And then made those changes. Are you just a question that kind of came to mind? How do you think of yourself um, when you know if somebody says, "What is your role or what do you do?" Do you think of yourself as a stager or are you an operator? How do you, how do you think about that? I'm an entrepreneur. Brilliant, I like it. No more needed. Um, all right, let's just finish up with a couple of rapid fire questions, mm-hmm. and these are they're rapid questions. The answers okay. can be as as long or as short as you like. Um, so the first one: How has a failure, or an, what what seemed from the outside maybe to be a failure, um, how has that set you up for a later success? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think that I so so here's a funny a funny little story and I'll try to keep it super short is when I worked for the real estate office and I was the office manager we were getting ready to move into a brand new beautiful shiny new construction giant building and I kind of went from being the manager who sat behind the reception desk answering the phones and greeting people to where I would have my own office with a glass door and my own team and staff. And I literally for weeks sat and thought about, was I willing to give up that status of, you know, having that glass door with my name on it um, to quitting my job and going after something else. Um, Even though I, I loved my job, but I hated my boss. And um, and I laugh at that now. Um, there was another moment where I was afraid to spend $50 a month when I was starting to make the commitment of a year contract for $50 a month for constant contact and newsletter service. And that first year, that newsletter service, um, we we could count $100,000 worth of direct business that we got from that newsletter. Uh, I think things like that, failures of... Worrying about what other people would think or, you know, was I willing to make kind of big commitments without any, anything there to, to fall onto. And, um, and I think in the end, I did push myself into a very uncomfortable place. And it was those, that, that really uncomfortable place that ends up having all the value and all the reward. Okay. Um, Another one, what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments that you've made? And that can be in the form of time, uh, money, energy, anything that you like. Having somebody that I could rely on to unquestionably do the business for me. So if I, uh, and for me, that started off being an assistant who now actually five years later runs, manages five other stagers and five other assistants. So she's got a team of 10. So she started off as my assistant and, and really deciding that even though I didn't think I could afford it yet, hiring somebody to start taking some of that load off my plate. 
Okay. I like it. That's very relevant to us right now. Um, what advice do you wish you'd received when you started out, either in your first or your second business? Get out of your own way. Okay. I think, I mean, and, and what I mean by that is I know that sounds cliche, but we, I am a control person. Um, I like to control things. I am not a micromanager, but I do like to have control. And sometimes the right answer is really just um, letting go and and seeing if you've done a good job and and um, seeing what happens with the aftermath. And um, I'm going to relate that back to to Gary V. Um, yeah, he says often. Yeah, he's building out his um, giant marketing firm um, or agency, and and he says five people's 90% is better than your 100. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And I think that's an important point as you're growing. You have to let yeah. go a little bit. Absolutely. Okay. Um, probably I'm going to – I was going to ask you a bad piece of advice for the industry, but I think we've kind of touched on that a little bit mm-hmm. um, some, of the, <laughs> some of the way. So we'll, we'll skip that one. But So let's just finish up with this, which is a, a, a bit of a simpler one. What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? So we want to know how, how weird you can be. I – love watching any show that has to do with psychology. And so, um, and and sometimes in an odd way. So like, I like drug rehab shows because I like to see the psychology of, um, how they overcome their incidents. I like, like millionaire matchmaker. I don't even know if that's still on TV and I like, um, sister wives. So I love watching how people think and respond to things. Okay. Well, that's all I had, but I, I lied. There's one more question, and this is the simplest of the lot. For those that uh, aren't already following you or seeing your stuff, what is the best way that they can uh, have a look at what you've got going on? Um, as I say, you put out a lot of video content, a lot of content, uh, including videos. So where's the best place that they can find you? So the best place to look is anywhere on social media for at Rave Home Staging. So YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, LinkedIn, wherever, if you just follow us, if you look up Rave Home Staging, that's where we're going to be. We're pretty much everywhere. I actually just recently hired a, um, a digital marketing manager, so she's really pushing it out. And we have had a video um, videographer on staff. So um, I would like to ask you a question, if that's okay. Yeah, hit me. So I would like to know what biggest challenge that you have in Australia as far as getting your message out? Like how is, how, like, what are your big tackles for your business in Australia? You know, I think if you'd, if you'd asked the question maybe a couple of years ago, the answer for most people would be education and um, you know, acceptance of home staging back then, um, especially as I said before, you know, the, the last couple of years, it's definitely growing as an industry. It's more accepted um, in you know, agency circles. Um, so that probably would have been the answer. I don't know that that is still the answer anymore. I think in terms of us getting our message out there, um, I don't know if it's a difficulty as such, but as an industry, we tend to um, we struggle putting ourselves out there. I think um, I don't know if that's a, a, an easy answer, but a lot of people, um, you know, speaking to you and, and what we're trying to do here at Foxy, we are trying to put out a lot of content. We have a, a marketing or a media person in house, um, and he was one of our first six people because we very early on committed to wanting to put out a lot of content. Um, and so I think we're trying to do it do it in a way that we put ourselves out there, um, as you say, educational content and behind the scenes and all sorts of stuff. But I think as an industry, uh, it seems to me that a lot of people are struggling with 
I guess, convincing themselves that firstly, that's worth it, finding the the money or the cost or the time um, to do that and just kind of taking a step back and, and, you know, it's a judgment thing, I think, to some degree. People don't want to put themselves out there or have themselves on camera. So I think in terms of, you know, building a brand, building a business, um, a reputation and getting known, I think that's probably the thing that people are struggling with the most. Well, you know what I love about your behind-the-scenes content, if I may, for a moment, is that, uh, and we do a little bit of it here as well, is when you show people, like, in the beginning, it's the value proposition. Is spending this money worth it? And they think it's a large sum of money because to them it may be, but really it's that they just see it as furniture in a house. I think when you do the behind the scenes footage, as you've been doing, it really shows what work goes into this. That for us, we've got to curate all of that stuff that goes in the house, right? We've got to go shopping and get it all done. And even when it's in the warehouse, it's then it's still picking it, you know, doing the measurements, picking it out for the specific house that it's going into and and the thought processes behind it. So that they're paying us for our skill set and our understanding of the market, not just our ability to make a pretty house, you know, kind of tying that back to a conversation earlier, right? And I think your behind the scenes footage does a great job of portraying how much work and stress and frustration sometimes it really takes to get this job done and why you're worth every penny that you charge. Yeah, and I think it's something you said before as well. We're not a furniture hire company. I think that's a very important mindset to to have, um, and that you know that fits in directly with what you were just saying, and and how we then portray that to people outside of our own business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they they think of it as just about the furniture, and we really have to showcase that it's not the furniture that makes the stage; it's the knowledge in the stager's head. Brilliant. All right. I think that's a brilliant place to to finish up, Melissa. I very much appreciate you coming on. Um, hopefully, those listening got a lot out of it, which I'm sure they will, and uh, will drop you a message if they uh, f- have a look at your th- your stuff on social media, as you mentioned. Awesome. Um, and yeah, let's. Uh, I'm looking forward to following along. As you say, you've got a lot more growth coming, uh, controlled growth, and I'll be watching along, and, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. And I'll be watching you on YouTube as well. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. All right. Bye.